was a mean man chasing after Jesus' followers. His name was Saul. He was sure that everything people were saying about Jesus was wrong. He didn't believe Jesus had risen from death. He was so sure he was right that he hurt and even killed people who believed in Jesus. Well, guess what? God wanted Saul to work for him and spread the news of Jesus. So one day, when Saul was on a journey, God sent a bright flash of light. It was so bright that Saul fell to the ground. Saul, why are you doing things against me? Who are you? I am Jesus. Now get up and go into the city. When Saul stood up, he was blind. His friends had to lead him into the city. Saul wouldn't eat or drink anything for three days. God sent a man named Ananias to find Saul and pray for him so that Saul could see again. Ananias was scared of Saul, but he believed in Jesus and went anyway. Ananias prayed for Saul. And Saul's sight came back. On that day, God changed Saul's heart to make him kind to those who believed in Jesus. After that, Saul was called Paul, and he began to tell others about Jesus, too, and became the greatest missionary of all time. Lord our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to have uh, the privilege to come into this place of worship today, your house. Thank you, Lord, for every individual who has made it to church today, and thank you for those who are watching elsewhere online. We know that your presence is with them as much as your presence is here with us. As I endeavor to share this word you've laid on my heart I ask, Lord, for your anointing upon this vessel, Lord, made of clay. Lord, will you use my mouth, my heart, my gestures today to be a blessing and a challenge to us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, my theme today is from portion of scripture that was read from the book of Acts 9, Acts 9, 1 through to 18. And my theme is, who are you, Lord? 
And what should I do? Who are you, Lord? And what should I do? The scripture lesson before us is one that is, is popular. Most of us uh, have read this story or heard it many times. But there are some important truths as I've gone through it that I want to draw out today, which I pray we will apply to our lives. As I said in my last message, I believe that the two most impactful events in the book of Acts are firstly, in Acts chapter 2, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And secondly, I, I believe that the conversion of Saul of Tarsus to faith in Jesus Christ is the second most significant event that took place coming out of the book of Acts and in the early church. What we see in Saul's conversion is the most radical, significant and impacting uh, event where we see someone repenting and converting. And I think it's the most radical conversion that we see in the whole of the scripture. So as we go through the lesson today, we will see how the Lord had been pursuing Saul of Tarsus long before he was aware of it. Remember from chapter 7 of the book of Acts that Saul was a member of the Sanhedrin council. He had given consent or he had voted for the murder of the deacon, the servant Stephen. And at that time, Saul obviously was not aware that he was going to become one of the most influential human beings after Christ that would live on the earth. You see, Saul of Tarsus had witnessed Stephen dying fearlessly. Scripture said there was a radiance upon Stephen. Stephen was confident. He died with his integrity intact. And I think that this was really haunting Saul of Tarsus. Saul was convinced that these Christians, these people of the way, were heretics. But when he saw how Stephen died with radiance, and to the point that Stephen, in his prayer when he was dying, said, Lord, do not lay this sin of these people stoning me to death against them. Paul stood and watched and witnessed that, and I believe it greatly troubled him. He did not know how to deal with this. He didn't know how to process this. So as a result, we come now to Acts chapter 9. And Paul, I believe, is trying to deal with the intensity of this scene. In Acts chapter 9, this, this, is, this is how he responds to what he has heard from the account of Stephen and seen and witnessed and voted for, given consent to So Paul responds in this way in Acts chapter 9. And it says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder 
against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues, from them to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul is a kind of all or nothing person. He's the kind of guy that gives 100%. And we have to remember that in Saul's mind, he's thinking that uh, these Christians are a serious threat to Judaism. And he's going to do everything within his power and within his might to crush and to eradicate this new movement. Paul is viewing the Christians as a cancer, a cancer that needs to be removed with immediacy. So the scripture says that he's breathing out murder and slaughter. It was his way of saying, God, I believe what I'm doing is is 100% right, and you would have me to do this, to drag Christians bound to, to Jerusalem to be put on trial who would eventually be murdered or slaughtered. And this is what Paul lived for, or I should say Saul. I'm so used to calling him Paul, but I'll try and stick to Saul. This is what Saul lived for, to murder and slaughter and persecute Christians. I want us to notice that in verse 2, it wasn't the Sanhedrin, it wasn't the religious leaders that commissioned Saul to go and threaten the Christians. But it was Saul's idea. He requested the authority to go to Damascus. And he was given that permission, and that's giving him permission to persecute persecute Christians within a sort of a 140-mile Radius. And I also, also want us to notice that Christians in this account are called people of the way. See, being a Christian is more than just going to church. Being a Christian is more than just keeping a set of rules. And this expression, people of the way, and it's repeated as you go through the book of Acts, you will see that Christians were called people of the way comes from John 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, I am the way. What does that mean? People of the way. I believe it means people who desire to know more and follow the person and works of Jesus Christ. Those are people of the way. And when we desire to follow the personal works of Jesus Christ, we become a threat to the enemy, as these Christians were uh, in the book of Acts. So reading on from Acts chapter 9, verse 3, it says, As he journeyed, this is speaking of Saul of Tarsus, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? 
Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Amen. So we recognize again here that Saul believes that Jesus Christ is dead. And that these people of the way, these Christians are all heretics. Saul was trained in the law, so he knew the law. He knew the scripture that said, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. So in Paul's mind, the leader of the way, Jesus Christ the Messiah, is an imposter. He's a blasphemous, false prophet or false messiah. And his intention is to crush this movement and eradicate it. However, in his pursuit, after he had been given this authority to go to as far as Damascus to persecute people of the way, to crush them, what we see here in this passage is that Saul, he is crushed, he is brought down to the ground. And in verse 17 of this same passage and in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, we find that that Saul not only hears the voice of Jesus, but he also sees Jesus. The scripture tells us that the men that were journeying with Saul, they heard the voice, but they didn't see anything. So a blinding light brings Saul of Tarsus to the ground as he comes face to face with Jesus Christ, the risen Lord and Savior. And from this, we discover two amazing things. Paul discovers that Jesus Christ is very much alive. He believed he was dead. But he discovers he's very much alive because he both sees him and he hears his voice. Paul also discovers that in attacking the people of the way, attacking Christians, that he was not only attacking these individuals, but he was also attacking Jesus Christ himself. That brought to mind that, you know, the way we treat each other is important. Because when you attack your brother, when you attack your sister, you are attacking Jesus Christ himself. I don't have to say any more about that. So Saul discovers here the reality of spiritual unity between Jesus, the Savior, and his saints. As it says in Matthew 25, 40. Whatever you do to the least of my brothers, you do to me. 
I want us to realize that Jesus is not just with us. But people of the way, believers, Christians, Jesus is in us. The hope of glory. Colossians 1, 27. And 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, Know you not that Christ is in you. Jesus is not just with us. He is in us. And then we see that there are two pointed questions that Paul asks Jesus. And these are repeated in his testimony in Acts 22 and Acts 26. Now from my studies I discovered that in most versions of the Bible, in Acts chapter 9, only one question is there from Paul to the Lord. But we thank God for the King James Version. And the New King James Version. In both those versions, both of these questions are recorded. However, they are repeated in chapters 22 and 26. So Saul asked Jesus two very important questions. And this is really coming to the heart of what I want to share today. I believe that we need to ask these same two questions to the Lord. Amen? Well, let me, let me just reiterate the questions. The questions are, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? And what do you want me to do? Who are you, Lord? You see, I believe that every day there should be a desire for us to know more of the Lord. Every day we should ask God, who are you, Lord? You see, when you're going through your trials... When you're going through your tribulation, when you're going through your heartache, you need to ask the Lord, who are you, Lord? In the midst of my turmoil, who are you, Lord? Would you reveal to me more of your grace and your power and your splendor and your majesty and your faithfulness? Lord, I'm in trouble. Who are you? Would you give me your wisdom, Lord? Would you reveal more of your intelligence to me? Will you reveal more that you are the Lord Supreme who reigns, who has my life in your hands? Who are you, Lord? You see, we can become so familiar with God. We think that we know all there is to know about God. Every day we need to say, God Jesus, who are you? There should be a deep desire in us to want to know more of the person and works of Jesus Christ. And then every day I believe we should be asking God, what do you want me to do? We can't be presumptuous that we know what to do each day. We need to ask the Lord, who are you, Lord? Reveal more of yourself to me and what do you want me to do today? Amen. So upon asking those questions, Paul gets his first instructions. And the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Notice here that the Lord gives Saul of Tarsus one instruction. 
It's similar to what uh, the Lord does in Acts chapter 8 with Philip. He gives him one instruction at a time. He takes him from Jerusalem where he's a servant serving tables, sends him into a city-wide revival, and then without notice, the Lord takes Philip and sends him onto a road to minister to just one person, the Ethiopian eunuch, and then he whisks him away from there, and Philip ends up in Caesarea where he starts a family, and the scripture says he has four virgin daughters who prophesied. One step at a time. So we can learn from this that the leading of the Lord is a step-by-step process. God doesn't lay it all out for Saul. He doesn't say, go to Damascus, and then this is going to happen, and that's going to happen. He doesn't even tell him how long he's going to stay in Damascus. God reveals, God reveals his will to us progressively. One step at a time. And I know we want to see far beyond that. But you know, God lights up the next step for us. He says, there you go. Before I reveal any more, take that first step in faith. One step at a time. I remember in the last message I, know, I, I mentioned that sometimes as Christians, it seems as if we have become stuck in our Christian journey. Or we enter into a season of drought. You, you want to know why that happens? It's because the last thing God told you to do, you didn't do it. And he's not going to reveal any more of his will and purpose for our lives until we retract and go back to the last thing he asks us to do. The last thing that God lays before us. Until we act in obedience and faith to that last command, then you're not going to hear nothing more from God. Because God is speaking all the time. God has something to say all the time. So when we are in that place of drought and we can't hear from God, perhaps let's just quiet ourselves to go back to the last thing that the Lord says to us. Because you see, when you do step one, then God gives you step two. And then when you do step two, it gives you step three. And when it gives you step three, it gives you step four and so on. So a lot of the great and mighty things that we see in the scripture, we, we, we have witnessed in our time, it's not because God calls somebody and gives them a blueprint. You know, you're here today and in 20 years time, no. It's because God gives them a simple command and they obey that first step. Then he gives them another command and they obey that first step. Whatever that might be, God reveals his will to us progressively. Can you say with me? God reveals his will to me progressively, one step at a time. Amen. So the scripture says that the men we've saw here are speechless. And Saul arises from the ground and he's blind for a period of three days and he neither eats or drinks. But what's going on here? Saul meets Jesus Christ 
Can you imagine uh, at the end of this message if I asked you to come forward to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? You kneel down and when you get up, you're blind for three days. What a package, what a deal that would be, eh? You're blind for three days and you lose your appetite or you don't want to eat or drink. Well, I believe what is happening here is that God wants to get Paul's or Saul's full attention. And he's removing distractions. So Saul, he can't see. He has no desire to eat or drink. God is removing sensory distractions so that he can get Paul's fullest attention, Saul's fullest attention, and that he would focus on him. You know, today we live in a world where I believe there are more distractions than ever before. We have our computers, we have smartphones, we have social media, we are being bombarded from every angle. Even when you want to go to bed, your phone going ping, ping, ping. Distractions. We know Saul didn't have a mobile phone, but he still had distractions. So God causes him to be blind for three days. He has nothing to look around at. Nothing to draw his attention. He would do us well, brethren and friends, for us to put away distractions from time to time. And that's why the discipline, the spiritual discipline of quiet time with God every single day is so important. And sometimes we do that and we... We come out of devotion and sometimes we think, well, I didn't really get much out of that. I didn't learn anything new. I didn't hear God speak to me. But it's important that we exercise these spiritual disciplines and put aside distractions. You know, the other day I bought a large print Bible. Yes, me getting well. I bought a large print Bible. You know why? Because for years I've been reading the Bible on my laptop, mobile, and there are too many distractions. So let me read one verse, and let me just check up this website. <laughs> and I said, no, 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 this is not good. I bought myself a large print Bible, opened the pages of Scripture so that I can read without distractions. So what we see here is God's wisdom. And beloved, sometimes when God removes things from us, don't wave your fist at God and be angry. Sometimes all that God is doing when he takes things out of our lives is removing distractions so that we can focus on him. So here is Saul. He's blind. He's not eating or drinking. All he's doing is sitting down for three days. God has his full attention. Amen. And then verse 5 says that, uh, Jesus says to Saul in verse 5, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now the gold, or in King James says the pricks, 
The goat is a sharp pointed tool used to get livestock to do what you want it to do. There is the image on the screen so you can see what one looks like. So Saul had been living his life fighting against the direction that God wants him to go in. And it was like he was kicking against a goal. And every time you kick against something sharp like that, you know you're going to be injured. You're going to feel some pain. Now I believe that the gold here in Paul's situation is Stephen's sermon. This sermon was haunting Saul. And now Saul has three days where he can't see, he's not eating, he's not drinking, he's sitting down and processing the sermon of Stephen. You know what God's doing? God is rewiring Saul. God is transforming Saul. And not just for three days, because we, we read that Saul wasn't really launched into ministry for another seven to ten years. But certainly in this intense three-day period, God was reprogramming his mind, rewiring him. He has nothing else to do. Because he don't need no food or drink. And he can't see one thing. His, his physical eyes are closed. But his spiritual eyes now are becoming open. Amen. Two things I want to draw from this in terms of application. We need to get to a place where we're not being bombarded with distraction so that God can speak to us. And that should be a daily practice. And also, what we can learn from this, that in coming to faith in Jesus Christ, you know, we think it was us who chose God. But it was God who was pursuing and chose us. And God was using this experience to humble Saul. So Saul is obedient to step one. He's in Damascus. He's blind. He's not eating. He's processing the message of Stephen. So here comes step two from verse 10. And it reads, Now there was a certain disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in the vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire of the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, 
and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once and he arose and was baptized. Amen. So here we are introduced to this character Ananias. Ananias is not an apostle. Ananias is not some big shot in the church. Ananias is an ordinary guy. An ordinary believer, just like me and you. Just like Stephen, who was, a, he was serving tables. Just like Philip, who also served tables. Ananias is an ordinary guy. But yet God chooses him to launch into ministry the second most important ministry in the history of this world. Obviously Jesus Christ's ministry being the first most important. So God calls this unknown brother, ordinary guy, and says, I want you to go to the street called Straight, lay hands on Saul of Tarsus, and release him into ministry so that he might receive his sight. You'll be like me asking one of us to go and lay hands on Billy Graham and launch him into ministry. And that's not even an equal comparison. The point is, Saul of Tarsus, this persecutor of the Christians, would write the majority of the New Testament scriptures as we have it today. Did Ananias know that? Of course not. But God is calling him to go and to lay hands. Give him one step. Go and lay hands and pray for this man. Reminds me of this song, one of my favorite gospel artists, Danny Bell. She sang this song, Just Ordinary People. God uses ordinary people just like you and I to do as he commands. I can't remember the rest of the words, but check it out on YouTube. Fantastic song. When God uses ordinary people, guess what? He gets the glory. Amen? So in verse 13, Ananias says, Lord, are you sure you want me to go and lay hands on this soul of Tartus? I mean... God, are you having a rough day? Because I've heard that this is a wicked man. I'm scared. I don't want to go and pray for this guy. He he could be just pretending he's converted to Jesus Christ. And then you capture me and my family. But the Lord said, go. Sometimes God calls us to do some scary things, you know. Things that within ourselves we're thinking, me, do that? Lord, I'm frightened. But as long as God is sending you, you can go in faith. Because the same God who sends will preserve, will keep, will provide, will open doors. Amen? 
So in verse 15, the Lord says to Ananias, Go for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles. You see, Peter was sent to the Jews, but Saul was sent to the Gentiles. Chosen vessel. Saul of Tarsus, this persecutor of the Christians, breathing out threats and murders and slaughters. That Saul of Tarsus is a chosen vessel. So says the word of the Lord. So let me ask you, what did Saul of Tarsus up until this point do to be chosen? I don't think Saul was impressing God with the pursuit of uh, the believers, people of the way. So I think it's important for us to understand from this that God's love towards us is not determined by what we do. God loves us all unconditionally because it's in his nature to love us. So even though Saul of Tarsus was persecuting Jesus Christ himself, persecuting the people of the way, it didn't change God's thoughts towards him and God's love towards him. So Saul had done nothing up to this point to deserve being chosen by God. And the point I want to bring here to someone either in here or watching this message, that God has chosen you. God has chosen you. And you may be asking, well, what have I done that I would be deserved to be chosen by God? Well, there's nothing you can do. God just loves you unconditionally and he has chosen you. And irrespective of your past, you may have just come out of prison. You may have just been sacked from work, rightly sacked as well. You may have suffered child abuse. You may have been declared bankrupt. You may be going through a broken relationship. You may have done some shameful and disgraceful things in your past. Well, I'm here today to let you know that God has chosen you. Amen. The God that we serve, you know, he is mighty. And his grace is absolutely boundless. He's in control of our lives, our destinies. Everything that we have done in the past, even the sinful things, the shameful things, even our pains, our heartaches, our mistakes. Do you know that God can work all of that? God can put all of that into his mix to make us who he wants us to become in this day? If you believe that, raise your hand and say amen. Because that's the truth. That's what God has done here with Saul of Tarsus. He was no angel. He was against God, going in the totally opposite direction. But yet God uses his past. So that's saying to me that our past life, even before coming to faith in Jesus Christ, is not wasted. Not wasted. God can redeem all of that with his great mercy and grace and use all of that to bring glory and honor to his name in this time. I find that amazing. 
When we look at Saul, we see that Saul was born to Jewish wealthy parents. He lived in Tarsus. Tarsus was a, a free city in Rome and therefore he was a Roman citizen. Tarsus was a university city. There was lots of high education going on there. And Paul's parents, being wealthy, sent him to one of the best uh, educational institutions in Tarsus, the equivalent of Oxford. Paul went to Gamaliel's school. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel, and he would have graduated in what today would be a double doctorate degree in theology. Saul of Tarsus was raised in a Greek culture. He knows how Greeks think. He can identify with the Greek mindset. And he can identify with Gentiles. You remember that later on in the, in the book of Acts that uh, Saul is then called Paul. As I've made many slips today and called him Paul. His name wasn't changed. Because his name in Hebrew was Saul. And his Greek name was Paul. And because he was sent to the Gentiles, he chose to use his Greek name to identify with them. So we see this, incre- this intelligent, incredibly brilliant scholar who God is going to transform his life and use him to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. He could stand up to any argument from the Greeks, from the Gentiles. Because he was trained with a double doctorate degree in theology. So we see that long before this Damascus Road experience, God had been preparing Saul to take the message of the gospel beyond the borders of Israel into the Greek thinking Gentile world. So just like Saul... Everything that's taking place in our lives, in your lives, in my life, God will put into the mix to make us all he has designed us to be. So when we go through painful things, I want to say, let's open our hearts to God. God will use our brokenness. God will use our pain. Are you saying no there? Well, I'm saying yes, yes, yes. <laughs> For those on the stream, you won't get that. <laughs> Amen. God will use our great losses and put that into the mix to make us all he wants us to be in this time. And you know that God can strategically place us that we are a blessing to others. Second Corinthians 1 verse 4 says, God comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Amen. What I find fascinating is that Ananias and Saul were enemies. Ananias is scared of Saul. But when he enters into the house where um, and, uh, Saul is, Ananias says to him, Brother Saul. Wow. These two enemies both redeemed 
by the blood of Jesus Christ are now brothers. Christianity in action, that's what we see here. One more point I want to bring out before I end this message. What we see here in this account of the meeting of Ananias and Saul is that God speaks to them both independently before bringing them together. Do you see that in the scripture? And it's repeated in the next chapter in Acts chapter 10. God speaks to Peter, then he speaks to Cornelius, and then he brings them both together. What does that say to us? That says that, you know, if somebody comes up to you and says, God said, I must tell you, you have to be discerning. Because, you know, any, any young man can come up to a woman and say, God, tells, tell me that you're going to be my wife. And, you know, for some people, that can put them into a spin. Well, if God tells you something to tell me, I think you'll be courteous of God to also speak to me. Amen? So right here, I'm saving somebody a lot of heartache. Be discerning. When people say, God said. You see, God wants a personal relationship with each of us. And normally God would speak to both individual parties. So that when there's a meeting together, there's a witness already there. So don't allow someone to cajole you into doing things that you're not feeling, you're not sensing, and you don't want to do. God spoke to Saul. He speaks to Ananias. And he brings them together. And God gets the glory from it. Amen. I'm preaching truth. Amen. I want to end with these two questions. Can we stand please? I want us all, whether you're here live in person or watching on the street. I want us all for the next seven days, for the week that is ahead of us, to ask God these questions. Every single day. They're not, they're not hard to remember. I want us to ask God these questions today, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Let me reiterate the questions. Who are you, Lord? Can you say that with me? Who are you, Lord? Reveal more of your majesty and your power and your insight and your wisdom and your glory and your faithfulness to me. Who are you, Lord? In the midst of what I am going through, who are you? And the second question is, what do you want me to do? Not my will. Not what I desire to do. But what do you want me to do today, Lord? Before I close, I want to give an invitation to anyone in here or watching online who senses right now the call of God on your life. 
You know that God has been working circumstances. Your experience may not be as dramatic as Saul of Tarsus, but yet you know that God has been speaking to you. God has chosen you. God is calling you. You may be from a different faith. You may be of no faith. You may be like Saul, an unbeliever, going the opposite way to God's will and purpose for your life. Will you ask that question today? Who are you, Lord? And what do you want me to do? If that's you, I want to pray with you here. If you're here, I don't mind if you indicate by raising your hand if that's you. If you want to accept the call from God today, you can just raise your hand if you want to do that. If you're at home or wherever you're watching, you may still want to take that physical action of raising your hand too. To say, Lord, who are you? What do you want me to do? Can we bow our heads together in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the Holy Scripture that has so much application for our lives today. I pray for someone, Lord, who at this time senses your presence and your call upon their lives. And ask, Father, you will aid them to answer that call, just like Saul of Tarsus. To say to you, Lord, who are you, Lord? Who are you, this eternal, immortal, invisible God? Who are you, Lord? The most exalted one. You are supreme. You reign over all the earth. Who are you, Lord? What do you want me to do? May a heart be surrendered to you today. May a life be transformed. Lord, begin that process of uh, reconstructing, uh, rewiring, Lord, thoughts and intentions and aspirations, O oh God, for the honor and glory of your name. And for us who are believers, may we also ask that question over the next week, Lord. May we not become so familiar with you that we think that that we know all that there is to know. We don't know the heights, the depths. We can't fathom, Lord, who you are. Throughout all the ages, we'll still be learning more of you and be astounded by your majestic power and glory. Stir in us a desire to ask you, who are you, Lord? Reveal more of yourself to us. And what do you want us to do? In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Please be seated.